Good morning. Well, as many of you will know, I am Sue Allen. Uh, it's lovely to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis called Genesis People. And the Genesis people who will uh, be looking at together today are sisters Leah and Rachel. And my title is Le Rachel and Leah Struggling with Life and Finding Some Peace. Now, I expect that you'll agree from your own experience that life can be a struggle. It's often not the happy ever after that you would have written for your own lives. In fact, for all its amazing possibilities, um, life is more like a series of challenges, isn't it? And those challenges can trip us up or even de derail us. Um, now, sometimes it's familiar problems that dog us, and other times it's problems that come at us out of the blue. Now, last year, all seemed well in my world. <laughs> I um, was uh, healthy, happily married, enjoyed my job. I was uh, looking forward to my son's wedding, and uh, I was very much looking forward as well to a long summer holiday because I was now working in the school system, so I get six weeks off. <laughs> so all was set for a very rosy future as far as I was concerned. But then suddenly, overnight, my world changed. My dad had a stroke, and at the same time, my mum had a complete nervous and physical breakdown. And suddenly, I was plunged into this different life. Overnight, I left my life in Bristol, and I went to live in Worcester. I was in a strange city with no friends, no church, no husband, no time off, no prospect of a holiday. And... Um, I was spending my time caring for my dad, who was very ill, and my mum, who was in hospital, and who wasn't my mum anymore, because she, in her confused mental state, she was very abusive, and she had a complete character change, which was, um, yeah, r really horrible. <laughs> um, and there was no clear end in sight. And, uh, sorry... <laughs> I have got over it, <laughs> which is why I'm preaching this sermon, but it still hits me. Um, I was faced with the prospect that that might be it, that might be my life from then on. And suffice to say, life was not turning out the way I wanted for me or for my parents. And it floored me. I went completely numb. And for weeks, I couldn't pray. All I could say was, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. That's the extent of my prayer life. And so I thought, this is no good. I've got to get my way through this darkness. So um, I started listening to Mike Batterson's Circle Maker because I knew that was a book on prayer. Um, and as I was listening to this book, suddenly he said something that made the lights go back on. And he said, be the right person even in the wrong circumstances. And suddenly, my purpose came back. And it's that one thing that I'd like you to remember today, that if you take nothing else away, remember that you can be the right person, even in the wrong circumstances. Circumstances often seem to go wrong, or are wrong. Um, we don't have choice often. And uh, they can rob us of our peace and our purpose. But we can live above the circumstances rather than under them. And we can have purpose and even joy. If, if we choose to fix our eyes on Jesus 
above their circumstances rather than fixate on our circumstances. Now, how can I say this? Well, because as we follow Jesus, our aim is to love. That's what we're on this planet for. And the wonderful truth is we can love no matter where we are or who we're with. Nothing can separate us from his love, the Bible tells us. No one and nothing can take away our love because God is in us and he is love. With that purpose to love, no matter what, our circumstances cannot rule us any longer. We are strangely invincible. We can be the right person even in the wrong circumstances because we're living out the love of Jesus, being his heart to people. Now, someone who exemplifies this really well is a chappy called Nick Wojcik. Um, I'm sure some of you might have already come across him. He's an Australian Christian who was born with no arms and no legs. And despite that, he, is, he just personifies, well, you can see Jesus oozing out of him. He's full of wisdom and courage and purpose and joy. And so because he's going to communicate that to you so much better than me i thought we'd just watch a little clip from when he was preaching in hong kong hence the chinese subtitles don't let them put you off i keep the toy box in the toy box in my room i want to get something and i can't get because i don't have any arms or legs Courage is when you try things afraid. You don't wait for your fear to go. You just try afraid. And when you fail, you try again. And so with those principles, um, I kept on you know, trying. And you know, as my, uh, you know, my students around me, my friends, they were learning how to ride their bikes. I was learning how to skateboard. And um, when I was eight years old, I tried to drown myself in a bathtub. I wanted to give up because I felt like my life had no purpose. And purpose is key. Without purpose, life is meaningless. Without meaning, there is no hope. And so I could look in my life and I'm thinking, I'm not gonna have a job, not gonna have a career, not gonna get married, not gonna have a good life. Nothing good's gonna come out of my life. So I should just give up. And so that's where I went through. And I was very angry at my parents sometimes. And but it wasn't their fault. I wasn't angry at my doctors because the doctors didn't do anything wrong. I was angry at God. You know, when, when, when he talked about, you know, God loving me and my mum telling me that God has a special plan for me, I couldn't see that. I, I'm thinking, you're wrong or God's made a mistake or I'm the forgotten one. I thought, no, that, that can't be true. Why does he let me be born in and you know they talk about God in the Bible where it says you know he can do miracles and you know you, you hear stories of of Jesus doing many many miracles in the Bible while he was on earth 2,000 years ago and what happened they got healed and I'm like well I want to get healed I thought wow God if you give me arms and legs it would be amazing you know, I, I didn't even want it for a selfish base as well. Sometimes I said, God, if you give me arms and legs, I will serve you. If you give me arms and legs, I will go on TV and show everybody the miracle. But he didn't give me arms and legs. 
when I read John chapter 9 about a man who was born blind. And everybody asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Jesus said it was done so that the works of God may be revealed through him. And he spat in the dirt, put it on the man's eyes, and the man got healed after he washed in a river. You know what happened? He was healed. And I'm like, man, okay, God, you know what? If you give me arms and legs, awesome. But he asked me, do you trust me? And I said, yes, to the point where if you don't even give me arms and legs here on earth, I still trust that you have a greater purpose. If you have a plan for a blind man, then you have a plan for me. But I pray, and he gives me that peace. And uh, I think everybody can relate to that. You know, everybody has arms and legs around me, but everybody still has a broken heart sometimes. And that's why people are encouraged by my life. Because they can see my disability, but they can see my victory in my eyes, in my smile. And they know that if Nick has found hope, then I can find hope. If, if Nick has found purpose, then I can find purpose. Do you know if God gave me everything I wanted, I would have had arms and legs at age six and I wouldn't be speaking to you? Can you imagine if God gave me arms and legs at six years old? No one in Hong Kong would have found out. And even if you found out over media, you would say, well, it's fake. It's just a story. It's not going to change anybody's life. You will forget that miracle very fast. But I stand before you as a miracle of God and you will not forget my smile. You will not forget my joy. You will not forget my story. And that's the miracle that if God doesn't give you what you want, he's got something better. And the way that I pray today is this, God, give me arms and legs if it's your will. But if it's not your will, thank you that you're gonna use this circumstance to touch another person. When you can save a soul, where you can let a soul know that they are loved, to never give up, that there is hope. There is no greater gift than being a gift of hope to somebody else. Okay. There's a man who's the right person, even in the wrong circumstances. He's found victory over a broken heart. He has come through despair to the other side where there's hope. No arms, no legs, but he can still love. He can still love God and others, and so he has purpose and joy. So now you probably think, what has this got to do with Rachel and Leah? Well... <laughs> I am going to tie it in, I promise. Um, we're going to see how the, that same truth plays out in the story of Rachel and Leah now. But just a few words of introduction. Um, like many of the Old Testament narratives, um, this is not a story that shows us the perfect will of God. Far from it. It shows us the dysfunction of humankind and our need for a saviour. Um, Rachel and Leah lived 2,000 years before Jesus, so they didn't have the benefits of his teaching. Um, and so in their culture, um, when Jacob fathered children through Rachel and Leah and two concubines, that was apparently normal. So don't let that put you off. Because although culture changes, God is the same. And human nature is the same. So there's a lot that we can learn. 
Um, so we're going to have a look at this story. But yeah, I've got to catch up with the story so far. So Jacob had deceived his father Abraham by disguising himself as his older brother Esau and stealing his father's blessing. You might know that story. He then fled for his life to his uncle Laban's farm. There, Jacob agreed to work seven years for the hand of Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. But in an interesting twist of poetic justice, which mirrors the trick Jacob played on his father, interestingly, Laban fools Jacob into marrying the wrong one. He got the uglier sister, Leah, rather than the beautiful younger one, Rachel, presumably with the help of lots of alcohol, darkness and many bridal veils is all I can guess when Jacob woke up on his honeymoon in bed with Leah not Rachel he protested but it was too late Leah was his wife uh, he was allowed to marry Rachel but he had to work another seven years and he got her the week later so here we join the story we got there eventually Jacob now has two wives who are in competition with each other they want his love, they want his attention, and to do that, they're trying to bear him as many children as possible because that was their role at that time in that culture uh, to further the farm laborers. Uh, so we're going to pick it up, Genesis 29, verse 31. Um, it goes from weird to weirder, I do have to warn you, but stay with it, we'll see why it's relevant to us. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So, so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bila, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bila as his wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant, Billa, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I have one. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy am I? The women will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants. 
Um, these were superstitiously thought to help with fertility, just in case you're wondering, which he brought to his mother Leah, Rachel, sorry, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> now that's an unusual chat-up line if ever there was. <laughs> so he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Okay, like I said, it's all a bit odd, but we'll see how it's relevant to us. First, let's look at Leah's predicament. Leah, like most of us, was pretty unremarkable. She had obvious limitations. And imagine what it was like for Leah to grow, to grow up in the shadow of Rachel, the beautiful one. Leah would have been known as the plain one, the other sister. Um, her name means fragile or weary. And I'm sure she was constantly reminded that she was not so easy to marry off therefore less valuable and maybe even unloved, unwanted. She had to face that shame daily and I'm sure her heart broke when her father told her that she had to go along with his trick and get Jacob to marry her under cover of darkness. I mean, you can imagine the shame and the pain when on the honeymoon morning and when he sobered up and he looked at her and he went, oh no, not you. I mean... <laughs> She knew shame, she knew pain, that lady, and I'm sure your heart goes out to her. Um, Leah had only one week of being the only wife, and I expect during that time she thought, oh, if I know, can only prove to him that I'm enough, that maybe he'll love me, but no, he always loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And it's in how Leah names her babies that gives us a clear window into her inner world, and this is where it's going to start getting relevant to us, so, so keep with me. The first three names of Leah's babies show her broken heart and her desperate quest for her husband's love, but also what she was discovering about God. She called her first son Reuben, which sounds like the Hebrew for he has seen my misery. She realized that God saw and God cared even if no one else did. Then came Simeon, whose name is thought to mean one who hears. She realized God heard her even when no one else was listening. And her third son, she named Levi, which sounds like they're Hebrew for attached. She so wanted her husband to be attached to her. But then we get the fourth child, Judah. The fourth child seems to be a turning point for Leah. This time she says, I will praise the Lord. 
Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. It is though Leah gets beyond lamenting what she doesn't have and her eyes are open to what she does have. She accepts she can never be Jacob's favorite wife. He may, ne- may, ne- he may never love her in the way that he loves Rachel, but she does have four healthy sons and she does have a God who sees and hears and cares. And she recognizes her blessings from God. After this point, the way she names the subsequent children born to her maidservant and to her shows that she views them as wonderful extra gifts to be enjoyed rather than expressions of what she lacks and still longs for. Through her maidservant Zilpah, she bore Jacob two more sons, Gad, meaning good fortune, and Asher, meaning happy. And then she bore two more sons and a daughter herself, Issachar, sounds like the Hebrew for reward, Zebulun means honor and Dinah justice. So to sum all this up, and this is the important thing for us to see, that the turning point is praise. And after that comes good fortune, happy, reward, honor, justice. It sounds like a quantum leap from her early days of marriage when her first child was was called, he has seen my misery. Leah has made the journey through her misery to an awareness that God sees, God hears, God is worthy of praise, and she chooses to honor him above her problems. And suddenly, life looks up for her, because grateful people are joyful people. She has become the right person, even in the wrong circumstances. Leah started at her marriage in misery and shame, and if you read on in Genesis, she, she ends in contentment and honor. Also, something wonderful for us to notice is that all the babies fathered by Jacob eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel, you might already know. But the the good bit is, Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah, praise. And Judah was the baby that marked Leah, surrendering the broken pieces of her life to God. God used Leah's experience of pain and her acceptance of it to bring about the healing and salvation of the world. Jacob didn't choose Leah, but God did. Jacob didn't love Leah, but God did. Leah's pain wasn't wasted and her life counted. Now, let's look at Rachel. Now, if anyone was set for a fairy tale happy ever after, it was Rachel. She would have grown up knowing that she was the golden girl. She was beautiful, so beautiful that Jacob thought she was worth 14 years worth of wages. He really wanted her. And I'm guessing being wanted that much must have felt pretty good. So what went wrong? Why does she become so jealous and bitter and angry and perpetually discontented? Well, first of all, unlike Leah, Rachel had probably never had to process huge shame before until she found she was not able to conceive children. This whole failure and not getting what she wanted malarkey would have been new to Rachel, and so it was all the harder to bear. Now, up to this point, Rachel had probably very much enjoyed living life as a competition with her sister because she always won. But what Rachel shows us is this, the dangers of this competition mindset. It's because sooner or later, we start to lose. And um, it's not a pleasant experience, especially as that's what you base your self-esteem on. 
We can see that this competition mentality destroys her relationships. We read she became jealous of her sister, she blames her husband, and she says to him, give me children or I'll die. Rachel was going through an inner hell because of her infertility, but also because of her attitude to it. And like many of us, she dealt with her pain by resenting others' success. She blamed others and she tried to manipulate things. Again, we can see her struggle through the names she gives her children. When she gives Billa to Jacob and she finally has a son through surrogacy, she named him Dan, meaning he has vindicated, which shows Rachel felt the injustice of her infertility keenly. And when, bore, and when Billa bore Jacob a second son, Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister and I have won and called him Naphtali. Naphtali means my struggle. Rachel's life revolved around competition with her sister. Even though Jacob loved her and not Leah, that wasn't enough for her. And also, she isn't accepting reality. If anyone is actually counting, um, Leah at this stage has four children compared with Rachel's two. So she's not the winner. Tragically, even when God enables Rachel to have children, she still isn't happy. She calls him Joseph, which means, may he add. And then she says, may the Lord add to me another son. Rachel's fixation on what she does not have prevents her enjoying what she does have. You see, what has our attention has us. And we clearly see that in Rachel. Her whole life revolves around her need to be the greatest achiever. And she's consumed with discontentment. And if you read on in Genesis, her life spirals down into superstition and deceit. And tragically, she dies in giving birth to her second son, calling him Ben-Oni, son of my trouble. So much for the happy ever after for the beautiful bride. It's a really sad end. Also, it's interesting that her son Joseph had a lousy relationship with his brothers, who we'll be finding out when we look at Joseph. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph and the sisters' rivalry seriously affected the next generation. Sorry, this is all a bit heavy, isn't it? So if you want to give yourself a shake, I will. <laughs> right, we're on the home stretch now. Um, both Rachel and Leah faced pain. The difference is Leah got through hers by surrendering her pain to God. And she found peace and joy on the other side. But Rachel got stuck not accepting her reality because it wasn't what she wanted. And she wouldn't let go of trying to control her own destiny. Now, there's a mystery in why things happen to us, and perhaps we won't know this side of heaven. Um, there's a con complicated interplay of good and bad spiritual forces out there. And, uh, of course, we live in a broken world, which is full of sin, ours and other people. Um, and so stuff happens that we have no control over. What we do know is that sometimes our circumstances are grim. And when you face pain... Uh, whatever your insurmountable problem or your unfulfilled longing, it can be like a wall that blocks you from going forward and you obsess over it and you don't mature as a Christian and you become rather an unpleasant person, either becoming resentful, manipulative or just grumpy. 
I speak from experience. <laughs> um, like Nick Wojcik and Leah, we can face the reality of our circumstances. We can do it. And we can get beyond our pain once we trust God to bring good out of them. Now, some of you will have come across this book. We're going on a bear hunt, yes? A few smiling faces. Now, when I was preparing this sermon, there was a refrain in this book that kept coming back to me. And I thought, that's it, that's it exactly. Because the children face obstacles in their search for a bear. And they face um, squidgy, idgy mud and long, swishy grass and ooh, cold rivers. And, and there's a refrain that runs right through it. And it says, um, you can't get, we can't get over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Um, and, yeah, there's a sermon there that I'm trying to preach. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. I wonder this morning if any of you feel stuck in your miserable circumstances. Um, is it like a wall in your life that you simply can't get round, you can't get under, but you must go through, otherwise you'll get stuck. So how can you be the right person in your wrong circumstances? Now, I'd like you to take time to process this with God and with others. Um, this is not a thing of a moment, but my appeal to you is don't stay stuck. You can get beyond your pain. God could change your circumstances. Nothing is impossible for him. Um, a few times in my life where I felt really stuck, the circumstances eventually have changed. But sometimes they don't. And in that case, he can redeem your circumstances by giving you purpose in them. We don't get to write our own happy ever afters. And often our circumstances are way beyond our control. But what we do have control over is our attitude and our choice, whether to trust and glorify God or not. So to end with today, I'd like to remind you of this famous prayer, often called the serenity prayer, that encapsulates everything we've been looking at. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I think Nick Wojcik and Leah embody that prayer, they found peace by accepting the things they could not change and courage to change the things they could and wisdom to know the difference. And ultimately, though, this story is not about Nick or about Rachel and Leah or even about us. This story is all about the much bigger story that all of our stories fit into. And that's what we need to remember. The much bigger story is Jesus came to bless and redeem the whole world. And he, and he came to make everything right in the end. Our stories only make sense as we embed them in his larger eternal story. Now, as we become the right people, even in the wrong circumstances, loving people with the love of Jesus, even our suffering can be repurposed to count towards bringing in his perfect plan for our world. And we can be part of bringing in that happy ever after. So, folk, so folks, thank you for bearing with me. It's been a long, serious one today. Um, but um, I'd just like to encourage you to go forth and be the right people, even in the wrong circumstances.